Welcome to First Importance, the official podcast of the preaching and teaching ministries of First Baptist Church, West Memphis, Arkansas. Our prayer is that you will be blessed and encouraged today by this message. If you have your Bibles, would you please join me today in the Gospel of John in chapter 12 as we are gathering to worship on Palm Sunday. And after you make your way to John chapter 12, and we'll be today in verses 12 through 19, I want you to place a bookmarker or your hand there and move back to Psalm 24. Psalm 24 and John 12, 12 through 19. We'll begin today by looking in Psalm chapter 24, a psalm, a song about the approaching of the king, and not just any king, not any fallen king, or not any king that is merely just a man, but a song that is written to be sung at the approaching of the one true king. This Psalm 24 begins with establishing the sovereignty of this king over his entire creation. The psalm then moves into how God's sovereign holiness should affect his people to live pure and blameless lives. And then the psalm opens up with a grand welcoming of the king into their presence, into the city of Jerusalem. Psalm 24, let's read it together. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, then lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. As God is, wel- is welcomed in uh, by his people, as he is welcomed in as king, they begin to shout out at the end of this psalm, lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. In other words, what they're saying is, we're gonna need a bigger gate. He's so much grander He's so much more majestic. He's so much bigger than we expected for him to be. We're going to need a bigger gate. We're going to need some bigger doors. We're going to have to expand the temple. Lift up your heads, O gates, that the king of glory may come in. You know, my friends, no matter how grand and how big we imagine our God to be, He always exceeds it. 
Now, many years later from the writing of this 24th Psalm, singing about the entry of the king into Jerusalem, expecting him to be so much grander than they thought he would, so many years later, riding up the road to Jerusalem on a donkey, palm branches waving before him, the crowds swooning, they would have no idea how grand and how majestic and how big their king truly was. So let's look into this occasion in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb had raised, and had raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Would you pray with me, please? Father, you know my own weaknesses and inability today to be able to speak with clarity your word and its meaning. So I ask today, Lord, not that my friends here today would hear me, but that your Holy Spirit would speak to their hearts through your word, that you would convict the lost to come to know you and love you, and that the saved would be drawn closer to you. For it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. We're studying today the triumphal entry. And it is one of the few uh, passages, it's one of the few accounts that is recorded in every single gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all carry this passage with them. They all carry this account with them. It's, it's a un an event so unique that they could not pass it up. And it is impossible for me to overstate to you today, 21st century Americans, it is impossible for me to overstate to you the temperature of Jerusalem at this moment. This is <clears throat> the first time in Jesus' ministry that he is accepting, if you will, the spotlight. We've seen Jesus before in the earlier part of his ministry, turn crowds away. You remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? What did they want to do to him after after he fed them, they wanted to come and make him king by force. And yet Jesus turned them away. Disciples had acknowledged who he was, and he would say, that's good, I'm glad that the Father has revealed that to you, but we, we don't need to share that with everyone right now. Even demons had proclaimed that he was the Christ, the Son of God, and yet he had commanded them to be quiet. All of Jesus' ministry, Jesus had seemed not to shun the crowd, but not to desire the spotlight. And yet here in the very last week of the life and the earthly ministry of Jesus, and the last day of his public ministry, Jesus seems to be making an about face. 
Now, on this day, at his triumphal entry, he seems to be accepting the spotlight. He seems to be accepting the adulation and the overwhelming display and reverence and worship, accepting him as Messiah. And Jerusalem is at a fever pitch. There are a few factors that are adding to that. Number one, it's the Passover. We learned a little bit about that last week, but it's Jerusalem. Uh, the city has a population of somewhere between 200 and 300,000 citizens. And yet at Passover time, this great festival to which God's people would make a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem, Jerusalem is sweltering. They've gone from 200 to 300,000 people to anywhere between one and two million people. They are shoulder to shoulder. They are everywhere. And it's Passover. They're celebrating the most famous Jewish holiday the reminder of God having saved them from, Israel, from Egypt and slavery in Egypt. And so things are at a fever pitch. Uh, Jerusalem is filled with people. They've all come to observe the Passover. They're zealous for being in Jerusalem and, and sharing the Passover together, not to mention uh, just two miles east of Jerusalem, and not too long ago, Jesus had done his most public and profound display of his power and deity yet when Lazarus, who had been in the grave for four whole days, had been raised to life in front of everybody. So they had all seen this Jesus who had raised a man who had been decaying in the grave. They all knew him. This wasn't smoking mirrors. This wasn't sliding in someone else. This is all citizens of that area who knew Lazarus, who saw him die, who saw him wrapped up and buried. Now, four days later, they have seen him raise Lazarus from the grave. And so... They are excited. They know the one who has overcome death. They know the one who has power over death. And so we'll see them throughout this passage today proclaiming it to those who are around him. Not to mention, Jesus wasn't the only proclaimed Messiah. There were many other posers, men who claimed to be Messiah, who attracted the attention of others, and yet none seemed to go after them uh, quite like they had gone after Jesus. At the end of our passage today, the, the religious leaders say we're wasting our time against him. The whole world has gone after him. But in a matter of days, the temperature is going to drop. The cries from the crowd will go from cheers to jeers. They'll go from loving him and worshiping him and bowing before him to shaking their fists and hating him. What happens? Well, let's go through this text just verse by verse, word by word, and let's see what happens. Verse 12, the next day. Now, the day is Monday, the Monday before Passover. Now, we call it a Palm Sunday. It could have been Sunday, but the different ways of keeping time and calendars. It was Sunday or Monday, but one thing we know for sure is that this day is Selection Day. Now, perhaps you never heard of that, but Selection Day is the, the week before Passover. The people of Israel will find that 
perfect lamb in their flock. And they will go through all of their flock and they'll, they'll pick out the best ones and they'll narrow it down, you know, and then they'll find the best ones out of there and they'll narrow them down and they'll inspect them all over to try to find the perfect lamb, the best lamb that they have in their flock, the one without any spots, the one without any deformities, the absolute best that they have on selection day the Jewish families pick out that lamb for Passover. And for many Jewish families, to protect that lamb until it's to be slaughtered on Thursday or Friday night, they will bring this lamb into their own household to keep it safe. And they'll continue to inspect it. And it's on this day, it's on selection day, that Jesus chooses to be invited in to the kingdom of Israel, to be invited in to Jerusalem, and to reveal himself as the true Passover lamb. To reveal himself as the true sacrifice for their sins. Right in front of them, they worshiped him. They adored him but they had no idea how magnificent their king truly was. They thought that they were getting a king that was coming to kill. But they didn't realize that their king was coming to be killed, slain for their sins. They had no idea how magnificent he truly was, even there with their eyes on him. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Let's continue in our passage. John chapter 12 in verse 12, John chapter 12 in verse 12, the next day the large crowd that had come to feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him. We would tend to just pass this over, right? We've heard this story. We can all picture it in our mind. Uh, they all have palm branches out. Palm leaves have, has become somewhat of a symbol for hope and, uh, and restoration for Judea. Around a century and a half prior to this day when Jesus is going up the streets into Jerusalem, the Jews were underneath the brutal subjugation of a tyrant by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, an evil, wicked man, and he subjugated Israel and Jerusalem. He was completely against their culture. He wanted to Hellenize them, make them more like the Greeks, and so he forbade them to worship God in the temple, and he forbid them to worship their God. He destroyed Jewish biblical texts. Uh, he persecuted vehemently anyone who served God. It said that he set up a statue of Zeus in the temple complex. I mean, this would have been unheard of. He's desecrating everything we believe. On top of that, it said that he takes a pig, a swine, an unclean animal, and he takes it in to the temple complex and slaughters it on the altar that's supposed to be set aside for God. It's dark days for the people of Jerusalem, just a century and a half prior to Jesus having come. 
There's stories even of this evil dictator having forced pork down Jewish priests' mouths. And if he found anyone who had Jewish texts on them or the Bible, he would persecute them. That was all until a band of Jewish men got together and began guerrilla warfare and overtook them. And it was uh, the Maccabees who, who did that. And they reclaimed Jerusalem and rededicated the temple. And they instituted the Feast of Dedication. And as they are rededicating the temple, what would you guess they're waving in the air in celebration? Palm leaves. Palm leaves. It's become a symbol of hope. It's become a symbol of restoration it's become a national symbol of, of, of no one ruling over us. And so all of these people begin to get their palm branches. They hear that Jesus is coming. They hear that he is, uh, uh, he is proclaimed to be the Messiah. They hear that Lazarus has risen from the dead, and they all gather to welcome him in to Jerusalem. And they have these palm branches. And so just by holding these palm branches out and waving them and laying them down, they are saying, you are our hope. Jesus, you are our hope. Our hope isn't in Herod. Our hope isn't in Rome. Our hope isn't in ourselves. Jesus, you are our hope. He continues. They're crying out. What do they cry out? Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, Hosanna means Lord, save us. And so as all of this crowd gathers around, they are literally calling out to him as Lord. You are our hope. You are our salvation. We're giving you this title, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. So it's obvious that at least on the surface, they seem to adore Jesus. They seem to have put their hope in him. They've not been enslaved by Rome, but they've been oppressed and they were ready for their king, laying down their palm branches for one, for the, uh, before the one for whom they have heard raises people from the dead. And then it says, they even called him the king of Israel. So these people were not ignorant. These were people who were calling on him as the savior, as the king. Even the king of of Israel. And then Jesus does it again. He defies expectations. Now, if we were to come riding in to our, our city, if we were to come riding in to Jerusalem, if I were to come riding into West Memphis to declare myself the king of West Memphis, uh, what could you imagine that I would be coming in on? I've, I've thought about it. I have ADD. I've thought about it a little bit. If you guys were to make me king of West Memphis, and you can consider this my, uh, my motto for the next election. No, I'm not running for anything. Okay. But if I were to come in, I think that I would, uh, I think I'd be like an F-16, and they would eject me, and I would fly down with a parachute and land perfectly in a monster truck. That's what I would want. Because you've got to establish dominance right at, the, right at the front, okay? I'm going to come in the loudest monster truck 
and I would land perfectly in it. It'd have an open top, okay? It'd be red, white, and blue. Don't you know it? And the music would be blaring, and, uh, and I would drive into West Memphis just honking my horn saying, I'm here, I'm here. And you would most certainly kick me out, right? But what, what would Jesus come riding in on? Maybe a chariot, the, the nicest chariot, befitting for a king. Maybe a, a white horse. What does Jesus come riding in on? Verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. The one who booked a trough for his birth will reserve a donkey for his grand entry into Jerusalem. Can you imagine the whispering crowd? That's an odd choice. Donkey, hmm. They would have expected a white horse. Sword drawn, I'm coming to take over Rome. Who's with me? Jerusalem is ours, the temple is ours. Who's with me? And yet here comes Jesus on a donkey, a beast of burden. They don't look majestic. Have you seen a donkey? There's a reason we get called a donkey for when we're, we're acting like a donkey. They look like a donkey. And yet Jesus comes riding in on this donkey. Hmm, interesting choice, they must have thought. And yet in riding this donkey, Jesus displays his own humility. How even though he was equal with God, he did not count that as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, showing his humility, showing he's on a mission for peace. They wanted him to come to declare war against Rome, but the war that he had come to wage was not one that they expected or wanted, but the war that they needed. Who can take away our sin? Who can take away our punishment? It's Jesus, that humble one and only Son of God, riding in for his coronation day in Jerusalem on a donkey. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's continue, verse 14. Jesus found the young donkey, sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. You see, this moment had been planned for centuries uh, many, many centuries ago, God used a prophet by the name of Zechariah in his book, uh, uh, self-entitled book, uh, in chapter 9 and verse 9, to say that when the king comes, he's going to be riding on a donkey. They had every reason to know that it was coming, and yet they expected him to be different. I like even the disciples didn't understand it. Did you notice that in verse 16? His disciples did not understand these things at first. Well, don't that make you feel good? They walked with Jesus Closely. I mean, they slept right next to him. They ate with him. Every waking moment they were with him, and yet there were still things that they did not understand. Isn't it great to know that sometimes we don't understand things, but later on, later on it'll make sense? 
Later on, we'll understand it better by and by. Doesn't that make you feel good? You're reading this account, and you see, even the disciples did not understand. We don't understand why difficulties and trials happen in our lives, why we're going through this trial, and why, why things are going on in our life. Why does this seem to happen? One day, we'll understand. Amen? One day, we'll understand. Verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when Lazarus uh, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, had raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. It's a large crowd, and they're all testifying to his power. <clears throat> they had seen it with their own eyes. They had eaten lunch with a formerly deceased Lazarus. And now here they are excitedly evangelizing. you got to come see this Jesus. You got to come see him. And I can imagine them calling people. I saw him raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet they come up to there to lay down their palm branches, and they look, and they say, a donkey, a donkey. Yet they're proclaiming him. He's the one who can <coughs> overcome death, verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And so it must have seemed. But my friends, things are not always as they seem. For the crowd that would cry for his coronation today would scream for his crucifixion by Friday. Those who wave the palm branches Monday would shake their fists in rage by Friday. They wouldn't bow the knee, not to this horseless wannabe king with no demonstrated power of their liking. They couldn't cheer for him any longer because by the time Friday came, they did, he wasn't the king that they wanted. They would cheer for his beating. They would scoff and they would laugh at his crucifixion. These very same people would gather around and jeer at the bloodied and mangled only Son of God, not knowing that he had come to take away their sins. They would prefer Barabbas. Now, there's a, a king that's fit for us. He's like us. He talks like us. He walks like us. He's violent. He's willing to do the dirty work. Everything we can see about Barabbas, let him go from prison. Give us the king that we want and yet Jesus, here he is, still the king of glory, walking, stumbling across the streets of Jerusalem one week later with a cross laid upon his back as they jeered and cursed him. Who is this king of glory? Lord, you're nothing like what we thought you were. You're exactly like what you said and nothing like what we thought. Lord, we're so thankful for who you are. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Oh, they may not have thought so. What kind of king is mangled and bloodied. What kind of king allows himself to be crucified and tells his armies to stand down? What kind of king 
endures that ridicule? What kind of king goes through all of that pain, willing to be beaten for you and for me? What kind of king endures the humiliation of a crown of thorns? What kind of king would allow himself to be crucified in between two criminals? What kind of king is laid down into a borrowed grave? The once great king, the once great proclaimed king of Israel lays in a grave. What kind of king they had looked for laid in a grave on Friday night and laid in a grave on Saturday, but come Sunday morning, who is this king? You're nothing like what we thought you were. You're nothing like what we expected. You're exactly like what your word said you would be. Who is this king of glory? Lift up your heads, O gates, that the king of glory may come in. And may I say here today, open up your doors, O hearts, that the king of glory may come in. He's not the king that you expected. And honestly, this time, he wasn't the king that you wanted, the king that you needed, who took care of death for you. And that sin that earned your death, he atoned for that. And he rose again on the third day, that if you will repent of your sins and call upon him as Savior and Lord, he can be the king of your heart and your life. You can serve the one true king. And my friends, the Bible says that he's coming again and he will not come as the humble servant, but this time he will come as king of kings and lord of lords and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So if you're here today and you've yet to repent of your sins and call upon Jesus as Savior and Lord, I want you to know as you feel the Holy Spirit tugging upon your heart right now, convicting your heart to turn from your sins and to turn to Jesus in just a few moments, we're going to have an invitation, a time of response. Come and speak to me or another counselor about how you can give your life to Jesus, the King of kings, the King of glory. Perhaps you're here today, and there's another decision that you need to make. You're a believer. You've been struggling with sin. You would come down here to this altar and to pray. You want to pray for a family member. You want to pray for a friend who's struggling or who doesn't know Jesus. Come down to this altar and pray with me or another counselor. Just come down to this altar and pray. Maybe you need to be baptized. You've never been baptized. You say, Josh, today, today is the day that I want to give my life. I want to, I want to be obedient in, uh, in being baptized to that king, the Lord of lords. Whatever decision needs to be made, I hope you'll be careful to be obedient to all that God has laid upon your heart today. Would you pray with me, please? Father, during this time. Thank you for listening to First Importance. It is our prayer that you have been blessed by this podcast. We welcome you to join us in person for worship at First Baptist West Memphis on Sundays at 1045 a.m., where our desire is to love God, care for one another, and share the gospel. Thank you.